I want to uh, start with an article that appeared in this week's Makor Rishon. I don't know if you all, uh, anybody here a reader of Makor Rishon? No. Makor Rishon, what? Makor Rishon, it's, it's important to know as you become more acclimated to uh, Israeli society. So among the newspapers, there are two what we would consider religious Zionist newspapers. There are many Israeli newspapers. There's Ma'ariv, that's left-wing. There's Yediot Achronot, that's also left-wing. There's Haaretz, which is like so far left-wing, it's only like in the Communist Party. Okay. And, and then there are, there's Jerusalem Post, which is a little right-wing. Not, they're trying to start a Hebrew, but not really. And then there's the religious Zionist papers. One is called Besheba, which you see outside the Makolot all the time, where if you really want to get the interesting news, you have to like, sort of read the news briefs. And then there's the big one. The, the main show is the Makori show. Makori show used to be Hatsofeh. Right? Hatsofeh died. And now they're up to Makori show. So, you know, it's, it's worth, it's hard. I mean, it's, it's real Hebrew. It's not, uh, you know, you have to sort of build up your skills. But if you really want to build your skills, it's worth it, I would say, to borrow, like, the magazine or the women's magazine that they have once every two weeks and struggle and try to fight your way through it. Because the more you try to fight your way through it, if it's feasible, uh, the, the better your Hebrew will get. So anyway, there's a really uh, interesting article about a phenomenon in Israel amongst Zion, religious Zionists or religious women who are widows. Uh, religious Zionists women, or like any woman who's a widow of a what we'd call a, an, um, a military action, or you know their husband died in some kind of military activity, or nifke uh, a terror, right? You know terror uh, activities, God forbid, or even regular widows. So by government law, they're entitled to a pension. Yeah. Right? They get money. But the problem is this, as such, that if they would ever want to remarry, as soon as they remarry, then they're no longer considered an amana, and their pension goes away. So many of the women, the way the article describes it, it's called kadat v'lo kidin. Now, there's a, there's a term, there's a term in, 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 when you call a marriage, you say she was married kadat v'kidin. Kedat means according to religion, Vikidin means according to law. Okay? So this article is called Velokidin, meaning she got married. So there are rabbis that are marrying these women, but they're not registering them according to Israeli law, which means, according to Halakha, they're married, but according to the Israeli system, they're still widows. They never register their marriage. Now, by the way, for the rabbis, it's against the law. Against the law for them as well. It's criminal. Um, so I have a strong opinions about this, but before I give my strong opinions about it, I want to, you know, for a group of women here, I wanted to, I didn't want to sort of impose myself. So the women say the following, that if, let's say, for example, like they have a bunch of children and they're trying to raise their children, so what happens is it makes it difficult, if not impossible, them to remarry from a financial point of view. Because their, their new husband now has to take on not only the financial responsibility of the wife, his new wife, but also all of her children. Because the law cuts them off after she gets remarried. She is the only one who gets a pension? Apparently, the pension she gets, is... Uh, she gets a child allowance. Apparently, the stipend is for her. You know, it's not based... I don't know if it's so based on children. children. don't get anything in the order. I guess so. That's the way it was described. It should be, it should be clarified. So, it's a very interesting... A very, very interesting phenomenon of... Uh, and apparently, I asked around, a lot of Israelis say it happens all the time. Like, they know a lot of people who do this. Like, they got married... And their argument, and their, their argument is, well, if I wasn't religious, then what would the, what, what do the non-religious women do? They right. just, just live together. You know, and, the call, and, and the law does afford some of the legal ramifications of marriage. It's like, you know, in Israeli law, there is such a thing as common law marriage. And if you want to split up, then you can sue, blah, blah, blah. But religious women don't have the ability to do that. So therefore, they're just kind of stuck. Because if they want to get married, then the, the system penalizes them financially. So, okay, Javara, what's your reaction to such a phenomenon? Yeah, okay. Does anybody want to take the, uh, the Amanot yeah. side? I, I, I have a response to Javara. Yeah. Technically, we live in Shirky, but in Torah law, not secular law. No, we have an issue. We have what Ruben said also is that it's not practical. Because if, if you've got six children and a guy's got a, or you've got four children and a guy's got three children, uh-huh. and if you want to marry him because if he's got to support seven children. There was an example, they gave an example of one woman who had six children and the husband also had six children. And they did get married, but she just kept the pension because it was impossible otherwise. There's one woman, her name is Chuli Mualam, I guess, who, who okay, got remarried. Woman? No, she identified herself. She invited like, she was a very well-known, like she's almost like the scan of the Amanot Association of the IDF, 
Dr. Rasman died, I think, and remember, like a long time ago, there was this. Uh, there were two two helicopters that crashed into each other, like a just terrible, terrible accident. You know, like a hundred soldiers were killed, something like that. It was really, really terrible. So her husband died then, and she it, she got remarried. And, you know, so, sometime later she was remarried, but she invited very important people to her wedding, and she made it a very public thing that I am not registering this marriage because I want it to be known that I'm protesting. So her, I actually respect because at least she's making a. Uh, right, she's making it a machaa. I don't, know if I, I don't agree with her, but everybody else does it, kind of like under the under the under the radar in a sense. And and I, I think that this kind of phenomenon, it's sort of a, it's an interesting phenomenon because it it makes us confront the way I'm looking at it. I'm going to tie it into the parsha. Uh, I personally feel very strongly that this is wrong for any number of reasons. First and foremost, it's against the law. And the right. rabbis are condoning it. I mean, these right. are the people who are supposed to be teaching us to keep halacha. Right. Uh, it's gneva. It, you bring up the idea of Torah law, Yael. It's very interesting. I did a little research on this. The halacha is the following, that when a woman has a ketubah, right, that the ketubah was designed, interesting, I, I'm pretty sure the, 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 the subject of, or the title of Kedat Vikidin, was designed after the notion, when the rabbis designed the ketubah, ketubah is machloka, but this is your right to the rabbanan, but the rabbanan said that, he, that a person is not allowed to live with his wife below ketubah. And you're all familiar with this idea. That, uh, you know, isha below ba'alaz, you know, isha surah. She's not, it's simply, if a woman doesn't have a ketubah, you're not, a husband and wife are not allowed to live together. Which is a very, kind of strange thing, wouldn't you say? Like, if you don't have your, basically, your legal prenuptial agreement, everybody knows what a ketubah is, right? Right? Did they explain it to you when they signed it and read it in Aramaic at your wedding? <laughs> they did. was basically says, if the husband dies or he divorces you, then the, his estate or he will pay to support you X amount of money. That, that was the design of the Ketubah. And it was really a, a very innovative, I would say, advanced kind of document, you know, way beyond its years, uh, that was protecting the interests and the rights of the woman. So when, but... The Rabbanan came along and said, here's this legal document, right? You're a lawyer, right? And what does that have to do with when a man says, and he you know, marries his wife, what does one, Isur Veheter, have to do with the other? But the Rabbanan, using their power, using their koach that they had, said, they have to do with each other. They're inherently connected. You cannot have one without the other. Kedat vikidin. Dat, religion, and din go hand in hand. They're connected. So now the rule is the following, that God forbid if a woman should lose her husband, the estate, the children, let's say she married a second marriage. So the children of the first, you know, the father, they have to continue to support her according to the rules of the, of rules of the Ketubah. Now what if she remarries? The children have to support the mother? From the, the, yeah, from the estate, not their mother. Oh. Like a second marriage, second wife. Let's say, for example, a second wife. Which you think of, you're thinking of, yes, you're thinking of a classic marriage. But the reason, the, 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 the Ketubah was never designed for like a, a mother and her children, because like if she's an almana and she has her children, she's just going to collect the money. Like that's the classic case. But think about you know, like a Jane Austen story. You know what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. right? Where it's a second marriage, and there are ch- children from the first marriage who consider themselves the heirs to the estate. Everybody with me here? Mm-hmm. You know, like the classic Jane Austen, uh, whatever. The estate is the deceased. Right. So the rules are they the est- are. what? They are. In almost every country, they are the, they are the heirs. Who? The children. The, children. The, the, the first, right, the children of the deceased, not the wife. So remember in whatever that movie was, or the book, Sense and Sensibility, she goes and lives with, in the family, even though the husband died. She's living in the house. That's the rule. Those are the Actually, rules of a ketubah. The, the intestate rule is if a husband dies, mm-hmm. everything falls to the wife. Really? If he dies not in Jewish law. I'm saying if he dies in two states, civil If he dies without a will. Without a will. In Jewish law, if the Yorshim if she, she hasn't remarried. Ah, in the Jewish law, the Yorshim, the inheritors, are the children. Right? The wife is not the wife is not in Jewish law, a wife is not an inheritor of of the husband. Right? She but she is guaranteed by the Ketubah. So they have to continue to pay her and support her as long as she stays in Almanah. What if she gets remarried? Then they don't. Right. All support comes up. So if you say according to Jewish law, the same would be true. But they, the children, ha- get the money from the estate. So it's a from the estate. But here situation. we're talking... Correct, correct. But we're also talking about a pension. We're not talking about... We're talking about support from the government. There's another actually quite sinister, quite sinister problem with 
a saying in, in, in this community, I think it's more subtle, but I think also very important, we're saying that it's okay to cheat. You know, because we feel bad. And really what's happening is we feel bad for these women. Right? So basically everybody looks the other way and says it's okay to cheat because they really had a hard time. The problem is when you do that, you say, well, the government's not really being fair. The government's forcing them to make this impossible decision about whether to remarry or not. Right? I mean, that's the argument. Right? The problem with saying that is what it does is there's a very pernicious subculture in religious life that the government is not really part of us. The government is this, I would say, other entity that doesn't represent our values, that doesn't represent our ideology, and that has to be uh, fought against. And I think everybody knows it's very interesting that you know, it, it, this subculture comes up in, very often in Haredi society, where the goal is to get whatever you can out of the government. Right? And now you're seeing even in well, religious Zionist society, you know, very in more right-wing religious Zionist society. And very, just to tell you, very interesting. I was in, I learned in the Shiva in Tarat Chaim. I remember when they were knocking down that uh, that settlement called Maoz Esther, like a couple of weeks ago. Every now and then, the government, you know, somebody puts up a caravan in the middle of the Shomron, and the government comes and knocks it down. So they, there was a sign in 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 the Shiva. Somebody hung up a sign saying, "Ha'erev Rav." I don't know what the word was, mashchitim or whatever, et maoz ester, bal Come protest the dismantling of this place, maoz ester, whatever it's called, but who's taking down, who is it, what, what did they use, the words they use? They called the government, the army, a rivrav. Okay? It's a very interesting, I don't know who wrote the sign, it's obviously not an official sign. It's a very interesting... Oh, sure. It's, it's a fascinating phenomenon. What does that tell you who are the Erev Rav in the Torah? The Erev Rav, Alaitan. Erev Rav are like... No, no. People that joined on the sides that are on the periphery of the Jewish people that always cause trouble. Basically, when you say Erev Rav, what you really mean is not real Jews. Right. So what does it mean that we're calling the government, the people in charge, the Erev Rav, the not real Jews? And the more we allow these kinds of behaviors to exist... The, the greater this tendency, this, this sort of fissure becomes. Because what it says is, well, I can, I can steal from the government because the government is really anti-religious. It's against my values. It's against what I represent. It doesn't represent, and it doesn't represent our values. But it's our government to try to change. From <coughs> you can either say, well, either it doesn't represent me and therefore I have to go around it and try to avoid it and try to cheat it and try to get whatever I can from it, which is a very, very prevalent attitude. I don't know how it's like in you know, other Chutzla'aretz countries, but you see that in America quite a bit. Or you have to say, this is my government. And I, have to, I don't agree with it. The law is wrong. The law needs to be addressed. The law needs to be changed. But no matter what, I'm not going to break it because I don't like it. Because as soon as you say you can break something because you don't like it, what that means is it's not, it's not yours. It's not a part of you. That's very dangerous. It's like the halachic, rabbinic warranty that the rabbis give here about not being tax compliant. Because if you really followed all the laws of the Israeli government, you would, and, and based on the tax rates and everything, you'd never actually be able to make a living. Make a, make a living and they're, they're taking too much because not enough people report. And therefore, there are all these loopholes that they give to people to not pay taxes. Rabbis like, do. Rabbis. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting. It's like my biggest argument when I dated here in Israel. <laughs> Every guy I went out with was like, oh yeah, my rabbi says I don't have to report, and my rabbi says I don't have to this, and my rabbi says, I'm like, how could this be true? Yeah. I want to bring it back to the Amano because it's come, there is a project here, here somewhere. Okay, it's an interesting discussion, but it's, and it's important to say that. It, I, when I read this article, I was very angry about it. Really angry about it. I'm very upset. Correct. It doesn't go in a good direction. I don't think it doesn't. Yes, yeah. What do you do when civil law is in direct conflict with Torah law? Well, that's not the case here. No, but I'm saying what... Do oh, if it was a direct conflict, then you'd have to have personal allegiance to Torah law. But you'd have to find me an example where the civil law tells you you can't keep the Torah. It's anti-Torah. It's not. And civil law, at least in our democratic societies, right, it might not be encouraging of... I mean, between you and me... Israel gives you off for all the holidays and it you know, enforces kashrut and all that kind of stuff. And I've never seen in a democratic country where they didn't allow in recent decades uh, the, the adherence to Torah law. So 
But if it went in direct conflict, then you'd have to be have an allegiance to the Torah well, first. That's more like the case in Hutzlaritz, where often civil law... It could happen here, but... It, but these women might say that. Oh, these women, one second. These women are saying that the law makes it difficult to be religious because I have to choose between remarrying and supporting my children. Like for the example of the one, women, woman with six children. Yeah. If he, she has six and he has yeah. six, then it's very likely their salaries combined will not cover... See, it's interesting. Correct. It so makes it difficult for her to remarry. A, they did remarry. But there are people with 12 children in this country who don't get pensions. It's hard. It's hard. See, if you actually, Ray, bring me back to the parasha, because I think what, what this is really also hinges on or, or catches on is a very interesting issue of how do we feel when we're trying to deal with someone who is struck by tragedy? Like that, it really it plays very much on our sense of guilt. It's, an, it's terrible. And you, you have to say it. I mean, we can come across, you, you seem to come across very harsh when you say, well, I'm sorry, you want to remarry? This is the law. You have to, you have to adhere to the law. Right? But this woman gave her husband to the state. You know, she lost her husband in a, in a terrorist attack. Yeah, she feels betrayed. I don't know if it's betrayed. I, you know. No, she has engaged that for the state, and the state is not saying we will support you now. Not forever. They did support you. They did say that. They did not say. They said if you get married, we will not support well, you. She gets married a year later. <laughs> well, she should be supported forever. The children should be. The children should be. Okay, yes. so you want to say the law is inappropriate and should yeah, be changed? Good. Yeah. Work to change the law. Agreed. So is that, so that means you could, if you don't like it, you can. You can cheat it? No, you uh, have to work to change them. Ah, she is. But every time they get close, then the Knesset shuts down and they get a new Knesset. Right. That's frustrating. Welcome to Israel. <laughs> okay, right. You know, that's what they said this time. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. It's always money. It's always, but what I'm saying is that this idea, this notion of struggling with, with... But it's interesting because you would think that the one, one group of people that everyone would want to support is... A widow from a mi- from a terror attack or from so, you know from a military incursion or whatever. But they could put money in a trust fund for the children. Yes, but it's not. It's a pension. It's it's really not set up that way. They should change it. Well, they probably would. Now it's interesting. So what do we? And this, I think, this struggle of what I would say is tragedy of how do we deal with this with suffering or when things happen to people who seem to be innocent. Is is a is a I think a subtext that's prevalent in the Parsha, and I'll show you where I think it is, and you can either take it or leave it or decide. You know, you know what I'm saying? There's a, there's a, this is a very interesting subtext that relates to the Parsha in this way, and, and I want to bring it up as sort of an underlying theme. So this, this week's Parsha is Chukat, okay? and it begins in chapter 19, after that long, lengthy introduction. It begins on chapter 19. Right? We're going to start at the beginning and then skip quite a bit. Okay, the beginning of Chukat deals with a subject called Zot Chukat Torah, Pasuk Bet. This is the Chukat HaTorah. What is a Chok, Avi, that most of, I mean... You, law. No, law, but there are mitzvot, there's Chukim, there's Mishpatim. It's a law with no, we don't understand. Right, okay, we, we, we generally understand, expect, why do we think that? By the way, the word Chukat HaTorah appears in many different contexts, but this is the classic one. And Zod Chukat HaTorah appears in a number of different places, but this is a classic one. We, we interpret Chukim, and I think generally true, I mean, there's nuance to it, obviously, but as laws to which we don't necessarily have an explicit reason. So there are laws in which we do have a reason. Don't kill. Don't steal. Well, it makes sense, right? Because you need society to function. But this law is a law of parah duma. So first of all, the general rules of tuma and tahara are very difficult for us to understand. Why is this tameh or that tahor? How exactly does it work? Especially for us where we don't really deal in the rules and the laws of tuma and tahara. So it's much harder. But in, in the rules of parah duma themselves are illogical, as we will soon see in a second. Zod chukara Torah Hashem is the laws, Daber al-Bnei Yisrael. Speak to the children of Israel. V'kruei lecha farah dumat timima asher ein ba'amun asher lo aleha o. You have to take a parah duma, right, a red heifer. There's a lot to talk about. It says v'kruei lecha is an interesting phrase too. V'kruei lecha, you shall take unto you, towards you. Strange. Okay, we're not going to figure that out. Just pointing it out. Uh, a, a pure red cow, asher ein ba'amum, unblemished, asher lo aleha aleha o, was never worked. Unatatem ota. By the way, how pure does it have to be? Anybody know? Cannot have two black hairs or two off color hairs. I mean, it has to be so pure that it's perfect. Did, did you ever see the red hair? They didn't have a real one. They had an almost, right? It was an almost. On the way was it really red? Did you ever go and see it? Yeah. It, it, it had it's like an auburn, like a 
white Here's my question. It wasn't brown? I mean, I've seen brown cows. It no, wasn't brown? No, it was a different color. It was, it was a reddish, a reddish orphan. Like the red of a red hen. Is it still alive? Uh, no. It died. It died. Oh. But you could see it on the way to a lamp. There was, there was the the big red, red heifer. <laughs> no, there was the stock which, which had some animals there. and you went to see it. I remember when I think it was born, they made a big deal of it. Like on a rich sheva. Right. So everyone was excited. Oh, we could, you know, if it was a really a paraduma, would we do the whole ritual? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. So you take this beautiful, perfect, wonderful phenomenon, right, the way you described it, and what, and what do you do to it? You slaughter it. And not only, not only you slaughter it, then takes from the blood in his hands, but he sprinkles sprinkles towards the Ohel Moed, the Tanta beating, seven times. Then what do you do with it after you take the blood and sprinkle it? You burn it up. You burn it, well, you save the beautiful skin, right? Sorry. You burn the whole thing. You take this beautiful para, think about the imagery, you take this perfect, wonderful in a phenomenon of nature that is unblemished, un, un, you know, unworked, untainted. what? Untainted. untainted. You slaughter it mm-hmm. and you burn it until it's nothing, until it's ashes. Okay? And then you take Okay? And then you, and he'll take this, I don't even know, this Erez, the tree of a cedar, and then Azov is kind of worm. No, Azov is a hyssop. Shni tolat. Tolat is a worm of some kind. You throw it in the mix. Okay, so you've got this beautiful mix of ash, oak, hyssop, and worm. You know, I, I don't know, you know, okay. V'chibes v'gadav ha-kohen. This is where people get stuck. Okay, what happens to the person who makes this, who puts together this concoction? Right. The paradigma is a paradox, because the way the Chachamim say it. It's mitaher et right? The ashes of the paradigma purify those who are impure. Umetame et But the people who are tahor, and they must be tahor in order to prepare it, they become Tameh. Well, how does that make any sense? The answer is, we, we cannot understand it. We just can't understand it. There's no way for us to understand it. What are you going to do? That's what's called, that's why it's the classic example of Chukara Torah. It's a chok. Deal with it. Accept it. Now, my question for you is a very interesting question. What is this section doing here? I mean, you could just argue and say, well, right, this is where the, the, the mitzvah was given. Unfortunately, well, actually, you couldn't say that. Prove to me that that's not true. You can prove to me that this section, I just thought of it now, that this section was not given in this place chronologically in the Torah. Who's got my Tanakh? Somebody, are you using it? Okay. Anybody want to take a stab? You'll, you'll know right away if you know, otherwise I'll tell you. I don't, these pregnant pauses, I don't like putting people on, on you know, giving them a hard time. Says the Torah in Parshat. I think if I can find it, I think it's Baha'alotcha. Yeah, Baha'alotcha. Here, turn to Perakhet Pasuk Yud. Perakhet. Oh, I'm sorry. Pasuk Vav. In Baha'u'llah, they had just done the Korban Pesach on year two. Okay? Very nice. But, The people who were Tameh, anybody you know why they were Tameh? Remember what the Midrash says, why they were Tameh? Remember Nadav and Avihu? What happened to Nadav and Avihu? They were consumed by the fire. Not physically consumed, only spiritually consumed. What happened to their bodies? Right, somebody had to bury them. So it happened right then at the Chanukah HaMizbeach. 
It happened right then, and then they had to get rid of the Korban Pesach, whatever. So somebody, whoever had to take care of them, the Midrash says, they were Tameh. So they were Tameh, and they said, On the 14th day of Nisan, they were not able to bring the Pesach. And they came to Moshe, Why should we not be able to? And obviously, based on this, what rule did Moshe... Give them Pesach Sheni. One second. In order to bring the Pesach Sheni, they had to be Tahor. How do you get to be Tahor? Paraduma. Right. You can't have a Paraduma until God tells you about it. So it must be that they had... Yeah, only way. The only way to become Tahor from Tamei Nefesh, from impurity of, of contact with a, with, a, with a dead body... Only way is paraduma. So they have like a That's why we're these stuck. and did them all the time? What? They have like a lot of these and did them all the they time? They had one every gajillion years and they saved it. Oh. You know, you made a huge mixture and, mm-hmm. you know, you're sprinkling from a mixture. A teeny, teeny bit. Yeah, well, the Kornim are not allowed to intentionally become Tamei Nefesh. They have higher rules for themselves. Although we're all Tamei in general, and everyone's Tamei, Kornim have to be careful about avoiding such things. Right. But the rest of us, we're all Tameh. It's one of the big problems of Korbanot. You can't go, why can't you go? One of the reasons you're not allowed to go on Harabayit, someone who's Tameh Nefesh, who goes on Harabayit, is Chayav Karet. Right. Yeah, be careful. You know what I'm saying? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big problem. So, we don't go on Harabayit. The only, the only way to not become Tameh is this Paraduma. That's why everyone was so excited. Well, if it's a real Paraduma, imagine the possibility that it opens to us. Was it really this purple? Really? Interesting. Okay, so then, if that's the case, if Paraduma was already given, what in the world is this section doing here? Let's play Stump the Band. You understand the question? Anytime you find something out of place, and it's clearly out of place, then you have to ask yourself, why is the Torah giving us this mitzvah now? Is it, I mean, is the whole parsha different? No, everything is chronological. We're going to see in a second, the chronology continues. I mean, we had Korach, Korach dies, very bad, the people complain, the staffs. Then there's a little break of some mitzvot, of, you know, truma, truma at ma'aser. If you look at the end of Korach, right, the very end of Korach, you can skip, skip back. Then there's, uh, there's chala and levim, blah, blah, blah. Then, we speak the beginning of Parshat Chukat, there's the para aduma, right? And then we'll see in the narrative. Let's skip a little bit. I'll prove it to you. Let's skip a little bit. The end of chapter 20. From the beginning of Parsha, people don't realize this though, from Parsha Shemot on, this is chronologically the longest Parsha in the Torah. How long is this Parsha? Chronologically, meaning how much time passes in this Parsha? Anybody know? Isn't it one that's 38 years? Correct. This is the 38 year Parsha. How do I know? Pasuk, Parak 20, Parak they all came in the first month. Okay? And the nation dwelled in Kadesh. Right? We're now, we've, we have very, very, very quickly shifted from the old generation to the new generation. And the way we shift to the new generation is when the leaders start dying off. So, without realizing it, 40 years have passed. My, the Midrash, I have a Midrash that you don't have. The Midrash says in uh, Seder Olam, Pachodesh Harishon, the first month. Which month? Shnat Harba'im Haita. First month of the 40th year. Pachodesh Nisan Haya. So, it's like, you don't realize it? Wow, time flies. You know? 40 years have passed in the blink of an eye. So, he spent the last 38 years wandering around, doing basically nothing, and then Miriam dies. Okay, so therefore, that's, that's why I know Korach was ostensibly not the beginning, at the end of the 40 years, but the beginning of the 40 years. So I had Korach, beginning of the 40 years, and now the narrative continues. 
And we'll see. And the next thing, Moshe, we're going to see the next story. And then they try to, they're about to enter Eretz Yisrael. So the story continues. But slam in the middle of that, I had some things about, some laws about Truma and Maser, which don't bother me, right? Why don't they bother me? Because they're going to go into Eretz Yisrael eventually. But then I have Chukat. I have the Parah Aduma. And I know Parah Aduma had to have been given before. Because they had done the Parah Aduma. So why in the world would God take Paraduma, put it out of place, and put it here? Anybody want to take a stab? I know what I'm going to say. Anybody want to take a stab? Or just let me go on? No one? Nothing? It's a good question, isn't it? I think it's a very powerful question. There's not only one point that it's a debate whether or not the Torah is chronological and that because Hashem holds that it's not. No, everyone holds Ein Mugdamu Mulchar Torah. Everybody? I think you'd have to say that pretty much because there are certain things that when the Torah itself goes out and says, oh, let, you know, like let's say the descendants of Esau. It just keeps going. It gives you all the descendants of Esau. Everyone holds that? You think there's anybody who holds that it's entirely chronological? Some hold that I don't really care. Right, but some hold that I don't care about and it never bothers me. You know what I'm saying? That the chronology is not meaningful. And some try to explain why is it out of order. Correct. Right. I mean, to me it's interesting what you... It, you know, if it was given before, there's got to be a reason. So I have a drishy reason today, but I think there are other reasons also. Okay, let's go on. So what happened? Miriam dies, and she's buried in sin. You all right? You got to run? Okay. And there was no water for the community. They gathered up against Moshe and Aaron. Sounds like, doesn't it sound like a repeating story over and over again? Now you're going to read it, and in light of what we learned last week, tell me why the story is different than what we learned last week. Be carefully. The nation fought with Moshe. And they said, And will we die the deaths of our brothers before God? Why have you brought this, the kahal of God, the community of God, to this desert to die there, us and our cattle? Why did you bring us to this terrible place? There's no pomegranates, there's no grapes, there's no figs, there's no water. Again, you notice that? They fall on their face, very good. And the, and the presence of God appears to them. Okay, what does it sound like? Oh, God. Not again. Right? Didn't we just go through this? People gather against Moshe. Like, you can tell me the whole story, right? They gather against Moshe. Something's bad. They complain. God gets mad. He smites. Right? And then they, they stop and they, they get punished and they, everybody goes back to normal. Sounds familiar, right? Except, except, what does God do? By Rebbe Hashem and Moshe Lemur, Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, Take the stick, the staff. You people say it so much better than we do. <laughs> what? No, it's, it's the accent. It's Americans, it's a staff. Stop. <laughs> Isn't it better as a stop? No, I'm so fast. What? My daughter is now South African, thanks to you. Yes, mom. Yes, okay. <laughs> she picked it up like that. It's crazy. She has to understand yeah, but she speaks it at home too. What's interesting is, she, at home she's American. She gets on the phone with you. Hello, you know what I'm saying? You know it's happening when you sit around the table and they want tomato sauce. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or she goes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> ba ba. Okay. Take the staff. Vahakila taida. Gather the community. Atav v'aharon achicha. You and Aaron, your brother. You shall speak to the staff before their eyes and give water. It will give water. And you shall bring forth water from the cellar, from this rock. Not a little rock. I imagine it was a big rock. Boulder. Boulder. 
and you will then water them. You'll give them water. What the? One second. If the story is the same narrative over and over again, what should God have said? God said to Moshe, Moshe, step aside while I strike them down with some new form of pain that they never saw before. But instead, oh yeah, oh, yeah water, right? Do me a favor. It's a trained generation. Mm-hmm. So it's new people complaining. So we should slam, we should slam them less. It's changing his parenting technique. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's go now. Go back and look at their complaint and tell me how their complaint is fundamentally different than the earlier complaint. There's, there's a couple of very interesting differences. You see also how they're called Ada. Excellent. Where are we? One second. Kachat Amater. Kachat Amater. et Haida. Before that. Before that, though. Very beginning. Very beginning. How do they defer themselves? No, not just Kahal. How do they refer themselves? First time. Yeah, isn't that powerful? They don't say... Yeah, it's totally different. Lama havetem et Kahal Hashem. It's not that it's us against you. We are Kahal Hashem. Okay? How do they refer to... Remember how did Korach refer to, the band of Korach refer to Mitzrayim vis-a-vis Eretz Yisrael? What do they call Mitzrayim? You remember? People of Korah, they called it, no, they called it, Mitzrayim was a vachalab udavash. We should go back to Egypt. We wish we were in Egypt. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt for this? You know, we're going to die here. Before God, we're, we're there, we're almost there. This is it? We must have turned wrong, you must have missed the sign or something. Wait, this is Kahal Hashem. We have a we have a, de- a destiny. The whole tone is fundamentally different. Yeah. This stage has, has the whole elder generation down at this stage. Right. So everybody is not more than forty then. Correct. No, no, no. Because remember, everybody's less than sixty. They're dying between. They only died if you were up between the ages of twenty and forty, which just means if you were nineteen at the time you lived, you'd be fifty-nine. Right. So there is elders, there are people. I mean, you know, there, there's a, there's a, there was a wide gamut. You have to ask yourself a very a different question, right? In this case, who initiates the confrontation? Who? Really? They did. Who started? Hmm. Nope. They did not start. If your son... No. If your son, all of a sudden, right, comes at you and, I don't know, starts hitting you, right, or screaming at you, then you have to discipline them. But what happens if it's four o'clock and you haven't given them lunch yet and your son starts you know, yelling at you? So then whose fault is it? Yeah, obviously, but, but you look at it in a different way because you realize he's just hungry. You know, you feel bad for not giving him lunch. Okay? Who started? What? Right. So in the Torah's case, God started. Somebody turned off the faucet. Now, by the way, the Midrash says, why did the faucet turn off? Right. Be'er Miriam, Miriam's well, it was in her zuchut, and very nice, beautiful stuff. I'm not going to negate that at all. But in the essence, Miriam died. Fine, he died. You know what I'm saying? Could be Be'er's Chut Miriam, you know, a plaque on the well. This was Miriam's well, you know. Okay. Right. It's only, we shouldn't imagine that, you know, of course it was in her Chut, right? But nonetheless, the people needed water. Was the plan that, sorry? Water's all done now. See ya. Ah. What was the purpose of turning off the water? We should feel Miriam's loss. Okay. What? Okay, very good. Now let's look what Hashem said. Okay, let's look again. Pasuk Zion. Take the star. Okay, take the star. You gather the people, you and Aaron, your brother. 
And then what do you do with the staff? Nothing. Nothing. Isn't that interesting? Ever notice that? And then speak to the rock. Take the staff and talk to the rock. And it will give water, and you should bring... What does Moshe do? Tet. Vayikach Moshe et hamateh milifnei Hashem ka'asher tzivahu. Moshe took the staff from before God like he had commanded him. Vayakilu Moshe v'aharon et ha'kahal opanei ha'sela ha'kel et ha'hida. Isn't that interesting, by the way? God said, you notice that it said ha'hida, but it's ha'kel et ha'hida. Right. What does that mean when we, in the context of what we learned last week? It doesn't just mean gather the Eidah. It means lehakel otam. Take this Eidah and make them into a kahal. How are you going to do that? So that's what he did. Hakel kahal And he said to them, Shimunah Morim. Anybody have an English? Go for it. Yeah, what do you have? You have an English? Pasuk Yud. Verse 10. Moshe and Aaron gathered the congregation for the rock and said to them, Listen now, rebels. Wait. Shimuna ha morim. Shimuna. Listen now. Na. Please. Please. Morim. Rebels. Rebels. How do you say rebels? How would you say rebels? Mordim. Mordim. What are morim? What? No, that's what the Vav, Lohorot. From the word mar. Listen, you bitter people. Rebels, I don't even know where you get that from. Okay, interesting. Probably from Rashi, I don't know. Hamin hazela hazea notzilachem mayim. Go on. Shall we bring forth water for you from this rock? Right, that's a good translation. I think we're going to bring water from you from this rock. And then what's the answer? Vayare Moshe et yado. Moshe lifts up his hand. Now, does the hand have the staff or not? What? Unclear. Vayach et hasela bimatehu pa'amayim. He hits the, star, the rock with the staff twice. Vayetzu mayim rabim. Gushing water. Vatesh et haida uviram. And he, they all drank, and they're all happy. What? He lost his he, what'd you say? As a, don't worry, as a, as a parent who lost my temper last night. Uh, who, who here cannot relate? Has anybody ever been driving in the car and your child kicking the back of your seat, you know, screaming at the top of their lungs? And, you know, <laughs> it's really dangerous. I don't, you know, they drunk driving, don't parent drive. It's really bad. It's not good. <laughs> Yeah, it's a problem. <laughs> it's much worse when we live in a issue that my kids tell me that they, they're not used to being in a car. When we lived in the city, yes, they were in the car all the time and it wasn't as bad. Now you get them all into the car, they're in there for 20 minutes, they just don't know what to do. So interesting. Last <laughs> night we drove, we drove, literally, we drove 15 minutes away and the kids were like, oh, it's so boring, I'm just bored. <laughs> It's so interesting because we used to drive 10 hours at a time and they would wow. sit their eyeballs on a screen, you know, happy as happy as <laughs> I guess if we put movies in the car, they'd be very happy. Okay. What in the world happened? This is a huge, I mean, it's, there's so many questions, huge, huge debates about what happened, what went wrong. Like, what, what was the staff for? Why did Hashem say to talk to the rock? Why did he tell him to take the staff? Why did Moshe say what he said? Shimunah Hamorim. I mean, it's like a little unclear what Moshe said. I think we're going to get water for you out of this rock. And then what does he do? He gives them water from the rock. The answer was yes. It's like a rhetorical no. Like what? You expect me to take you to school now? And then what do we do? Rashi says here that Rashi said he was angry because he previously spoke to the wrong rock. He had pre- he spoke to the wrong rock? He said he struck rock because he previously said it was the wrong rock. Hold on. Sorry, <laughs> 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 Ah, Rashi says, look at the Rashi. Okay, look at Rashi. Okay, look at R
on Pasuk Yud. Very good. I mean, I still listen to Tzitzah's Rashi. They didn't know. They didn't recognize it. When, when, when the Be'er went, so the, it was Miriam's rock. So what did it do? It went and hid with the other rocks. That's <laughs> what it says. That's what Rashi said. You know, almost like, you know, uh, reminds me of, uh, you know, of, um, that Indiana Jones thing. We had to figure out which one was the real Holy Grail. Like, don't make the wrong choice. I don't know. What difference does the, does the rock make? Who cares which rock it is? And don't get me wrong, but there weren't any pipes in the rock. So they had a point. <laughs> you know, like, they were irritable. They were thirsty. You know, by the way, how long do you think it took for them to complain? One day. But it wasn't, I don't think it was like automatic. Oh no, there's no water. I think that they waited probably. Like they waited until it was, you know, it's bad. If we don't get water, we're going to be in big trouble. That's where Rashi gets it from. That's where the Arsua gets it from. Sarbanim the Sarev. The Sarbanim are rebels. Okay? Lashon Yivani, Shotim, fools. Morimet Moritem. Hamina Sela Hazeh. Shalonit Savu Alechem Rotilachamayim. It's not that Moshe didn't know the right rock. It's that they didn't know which rock it was. So, who cares what rock it is? And they said, no, Moshe said, what are you, idiots? Of course it's important to know what rock it is. Then he hits it twice. Why twice? Rashi says, Right? Because the first time he hit it, only drops came out. Why did only drops come out? Because it wasn't supposed to hit the rock. He was supposed to talk to the rock. Now, between you, that's pretty impressive. Right? Hashem says, talk to the rock, and you hit it, and water comes out? Let's try Nothing. I don't, it doesn't really work, you know. Try to get water out of a rock. Moshe could do it. Okay. And they spoke to the wrong rock, and it didn't come out. Moshe complicated or confused this story with the previous story. Remember, there was a time when Moshe was supposed to hit the rock. He was entrusted at the very beginning of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Now, it's very interesting to note, this story is very parallel to a previous story. And to really understand the story, which we're not going to do, you have to go back and understand the previous story. So Moshe sort of confused the two. And why is Hashem, Hashem is in a way re-engaging for the new nation, the same story over again. You you understand what I'm saying? The same thing, but different. Before it was hitting the rock, this time we're going to talk to the rock. And I, I believe there's a lot to that. Nonetheless, so, and Ramban says, what you said, why is Moshe, where Moshe is going to be punished? Why is he punished? Three words. Shimunahamorim. He lost it. You bitter people. What does Hashem say? Yom Hashem el Moshe. You'd bet. El Aharon. Moshe says, Moshe now. Ya'an lo he'emantem bi. Because you did not believe in me. L'hakdisheni le'enei b'nei Yisrael. To sanctify me in the eyes of b'nei Yisrael. L'chein, therefore... I'm very sorry, but you're fired. Yeah, I'm sorry. These are the main riva, the waters of Meriva that Benesa fought with God, and he was sanctified in them. End of story. And you have to ask the fun- I'm going to stop. We're going to stop in a minute. You have to ask the fundamental question. What? What? Yeah. What is it? Big deal. Big deal. Come on. I always when. Sorry. Yeah, go for it. The story. Mm. I always. None of the Mephoshim give a clear cut answers to exactly why it was punished and what happened exactly. I always get the impression that it was contrived so that Moshe would not be able to bring the name. God contrived it to get Moshe to yell at the rock, to hit the rock instead of. No, it's just that he was the inappropriate leader for the new generation. Uh huh. And he could not bring them into Eretz Israel. Okay, I think that's true too. But then what? What's the? You're saying it's nothing the rock. Right. What what you do is what you're saying though is then that this story is really not true. 
that's a tri- there's a problem with what you're saying because you're saying is that it's contrived. God sort of gave an excuse, but it wasn't really an excuse. I'm afraid to say that. Deliberately, Moshe did it to himself. Ooh, yes. I never thought of he that. He wanted to show Moshe that he was inappropriate wow. for that generation. Or Moshe felt oh. that he was inappropriate. Moshe begged to go into Eretz Yisrael. Bang. Bang. But he realized that, that was the last. His life's mission. But, but, but he realized. So, so yeah, I think I gotta stop because I because I I'm, you know yells at me very much if I go too long. I gotta stop. But I think you said it so well. No matter what you say, you still come away with like. That's what it. That's it. What did he do to deserve it? And to me, the answer is nothing. Moshe is the para aduma. Right? When you think about zot chukara torah, think about the para aduma, a perfect heifer. With no blemishes. How many hairs did you say it, could, it couldn't have? It could have one. It could have one. And what do you do to that perfect para in order to bring about tahara to the nation? You burn it. You destroy it. And what do we say? We say that the sreifat para is mitaher etatmeim, but it's mitameh etatahorim. There's a certain paradox in there. And that in essence, what Yael is saying, and I think that the reason, one of the messages of Zot Torah, the reason why it's here is to tell you that in, in a way, it's not fair. We do not understand the, the justice in the punishment of Moshe and Aaron for this thing, that this is why they lost Eretz Yisrael. And we're not meant to. Chazal tell us that mitatan shal tzadikim mechaprim, that, that the, the suffering of the righteous is a kapara, and you had something that in Judaism, it doesn't make sense to us. It's not logical to us. Because those are the people that they should suffer. The woman who gives her husband over, like she should suffer. Thank you. She should suffer. It was cold anyway. You know, that, that should be, she, she should be the one that, that has such a hard time. We feel that, that sense of pain for her. We feel her anguish in a sense. We feel that sense of guilt. We feel that sense of injustice. And I think that's really what Zod Chukaratara is all about. It's not our place, in essence, to try to understand or even make right things that we think are injustices. And when we see suffering, we have to, in a way, accept and say, Zod Chukaratara, that this is what Hashem says. The, the Chazal, the rabbis very often quote the, the Targum of Zod Chukaratara. This is the Targum. Da Gzerat Oraita. This is the decree of Oraita, of the Torah. And in, sometimes we have a tendency to say, we have to make things better, we have to fix what's wrong. When we can't. We don't have the ability to fix the things that we, we struggle with. And that just like we sometimes say to ourselves, or we, should, we have to say to ourselves, whether well, our mitzvot we don't understand, well, that's okay. So too, in the areas of the world, and events, and life, the suffering of Moshe and Aaron and their punishment, and Lo Aleinu, the suffering of people who really don't deserve it. I mean, it's, we have to look at it and say, there are things in the world we don't understand. And we have a certain sense, just like Hashem created the Torah and gave us a sense of the Torah is correct and just, that God's ways are just as well. We'll stop here. Yeah. <laughs>